I'm Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Naor Menninger. And you're listening to Two Nice Jewish Boys. This podcast is made in collaboration with The Jewish Journal. The last elections that were held in Israel a month ago brought the country to yet another political standstill. With no clear winner or loser, the country could very well be approaching its third elections in a single year. And the worst part? Those elections might just lead us right back to square one. How could it be then that the only Jewish state, the only democracy in the Middle East, is dealing with such a deep divide? The answer, as always, is in the numbers. Israel in, Israel's inner demogra- demographics are extremely complicated, with dozens of streams and substreams, beliefs, ideologies, and various political views. Mix all these ingredients together, put it over medium heat for a couple of years, and you'll get a complete chaos of a dish. That's the Israeli story. To understand these complexities, one must dive into the numbers and ask some hard and basic questions. How many Jews in Israel fast on Yom Kippur? How many wave, how many wave the Israeli flag on Independence Day? How many people think that serving in the IDF is essential? And how many think Israel should have sovereignty from the river to the sea? Those questions and the statistics behind them might help us put the pieces together in the puzzle of Israeli society, which leads us to Shmuel Rosner. Alongside Professor Camille Fuchs, who is the Israeli Nate Silver, some might say. Shmuel Rosner wrote an extremely important book, Hashtag Israeli Judaism, which is now out in English. The book is based on a broad-scale, thorough series of polls conducted by the, author, uh, by the authors and their interpretation and the conclusions that Shmuel Rosner deducts from them. Shmuel Rosner is an Israeli writer, researcher, editor based in Tel Aviv. He is a senior fellow at the Jewish People Policy Institute, the JPPI in Jerusalem. Rosner is a contributing opinion writer for the International New York Times. He's a senior political editor for the Los Angeles Jewish Journal. And he's the host of the great podcast, Rosner's Domain, and we're thrilled to have him on our show today. Eitan is not here, so I'm thrilled. And it's for the second time. You've been with us also. It's a secret episode between... 114 and episode 115, guys, so you can check it out. Hello, Shmuel, thanks for joining. Thank you. I, I didn't remember the exact number of the previous show yeah. I was on, but <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here again. Thank you. Um, so how this idea for the book came to be? Well, um, it all began at a Rosh Hashanah evening. Uh, we had a family dinner. And a discussion started, I'm not sure why or how, as to what is the exact number or the exact percentage of people who go to synagogue the next morning to hear the blow of the shofar. Now, I, I must share with you uh, the fact that my f- wife comes from a, an Israeli secular family. She doesn't usually go to synagogue and her family didn't usually go to synagogues. I come from a Jerusalemite Orthodox Israeli family, so we used to go to synagogue all the time. For us as an Orthodox family, the blowing of the shofar on Rosh Hashanah was the main feature of the day. It's the main mitzvah, the main commandment that people observe or practice on Rosh Hashanah. For my wife, it was the family meal 
the spending the evening together, maybe the apple and the honey. So we got into such discussion and uh, when Rosh Hashanah was over, I went to my computer and I was searching for an answer and realized there is none. No one bothered, as far as I can, I could see, no one ever bothered asking the question. And when I started looking for other similar questions, I realized that very few surveys used very few questions um, when looking at the way Israelis practice their Jewishness or and Israeliness. How and come? How come? Be you know, because surveys usually use the, the same set of, I don't know, 10 or 20 questions. You know, do you light candles on Friday night? Do you eat kosher? Do you believe in God? There are several such questions for which we had answers in many surveys. But I wanted a much more detailed, much richer uh, understanding of Israeli society. And for this, you need a much more nuanced set of questions for, for Shabbat. You don't only want to ask about candles. You want to ask about the family meal, and you want to ask about the synagogue, and you want to ask about... Uh, the blessing on the bread and on the wine and on driving. Do you drive on Shabbat? Do you shop on Shabbat? Do you work on Shabbat? There, just for Shabbat, you can ask 20 questions. And, and so the idea emerged of having such survey with hundreds. We literally had 100, 400 questions in a, a number of surveys in which we could look in a very detailed way at what Israelis do, what they practice, what they believe in. And then, you know, when you take all these data together and begin applying statistical models, which I cannot do, but Professor Fuchs, who's a well-known Israeli mathematician and pollster. And most importantly, Romanian. Romanian, that's true. He came, he came from Romania. Um, at uh, the age of 15, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so, so working with, with Professor Fuchs, we were able to apply all these statistical models and take all the data in and try to come out with what we call a portrait of Jewish-Israeli society. The book is called Israeli Judaism, Portrait of Cult a Cultural Revolution. And, you know, not to scare our listeners off, um, this is not a book of just data. We try right. to, to, tell draw, a story. to tell a story, to have a narrative. Based on all the data that we gathered, we try to, to tell the story of contemporary Jewish-Israeli society. The process seems fascinating. I mean, how, like the process of writing 400 questions... Which questions were left out? How do you choose the questions? How do you how do you pick the audiences? How many people were polled? Can you show tell us a little bit about the yeah, behind so, the so, scenes? So, as I said, we you know the idea started with Rosh Hashanah. So we we started with the calendar, with the Jewish calendar and the Israeli calendar, and then you know questions began to emerge. Okay, so Rosh Hashanah, that's obvious. We want to ask many questions about Rosh Hashanah. But the next day is 
Tzom Gedalia, the fast of Gedalia, a, a minor fast that many people barely acknowledge or, or remember exists. Do we ask about it or not? We decided to add it in. Let's see how many people fast on Tzom Gedalia. Then you have Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, again, that's, it's an easy one. But we wanted to look at Yom Kippur in a very detailed way. So we didn't just ask people, do you fast on Yom Kippur? We asked, do you fast the full day? Do you not eat or do you not eat and drink? Do you fast every year or every couple of years? Do you send your kids to ride their bicycles on Yom Kippur? You know, some of our uh, listeners overseas might not know this, but Yom Kippur in Israel, in many cities, we are now in Tel Aviv. In Tel Aviv, it's very vivid. When you, when you walk out the door in Tel Aviv on Yom Kippur, you immediately know it's Yom Kippur, not because of the people walking to shul and back, but rather because of the empty roads that are filled with children riding their bikes. So we, we wanted to ask, okay, do you ride your bikes? Do you let your children ride their bikes? Um, and, and, you know, the, the more you look into the calendar, you, the more you realize that there are many issues you can just know by, by asking questions about the calendar. Uh, the Memorial Day for the late Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin. Prime Minister Rabin was assassinated. It was a traumatic event in Israel's history. There is an official Memorial Day for Rabin on our calendar. Do people know this? Do people observe it in some way? Do they, do they light a candle in his memory? Do they go to a special event to commemorate him? Do they go to the annual rally. So what uh, did you find out, for example, about the Rabin? So, so on, on the Rabin issue, well, some of the things that we found were obvious. Uh, for example, the more people tend to identify with the political views for which he's remembered, the peace process, the Oslo process, etc., the more likely they are to go to the rally. Because the rally for him or the, the annual event held in his uh, uh, memory at Tel Aviv Square every year is a highly, it's not just an emotional occasion, it's all also highly political. Highly political. Mm -hmm. But we also found that there are many people who disagreed with Rabin politically, people on the right, religious people on the right, who will never go to the, the rally that is supportive of the Oslo process, but they use their own language to commemorate him. They light a candle, Ner Zikaron. Or pray. Maybe. Yeah, most of them do not pray, but, but the issue of the, the candle, candle. yeah, mm -hmm. we, we were surprised by the number of people who light a candle mm -hmm. and come from, from uh, sections within Israeli society mm -hmm. whom do you not associate with commemorating Rabin. Right. We asked about the, you know, Ethiopian holiday. We asked about, we asked about... Uh, the Mimuna. The Mimuna, a Moroccan holiday. We also asked about non-Jewish events such as New Year's or um, um, Valentine's Day. In fact, 
we wanted and succeeded in comparing the two uh, days on our calendar in which we celebrate love. There is the foreign uh, non-Jewish Valentine's Day. There is Tubeav, the 15th in the month of Av. That's the Jewish day in which we think and 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 yeah. celebrate Essentially, love. Israeli husbands need need to bring twice twice a year. They need to be bring the the roses. And many of them do. <laughs> and many of them do because we asked about both both these occasions. Right. And some people, you know, they they tend to celebrate Valentine's and forget about Tubeav. More people tend to remember Tubeav and disregard uh, Valentine's. And many people just, you know, celebrate both. And they, they'd say, well, you know, it's love. Why not do it twice a year rather than once a year? So by taking in all this data and, and also combining it, um, you, you can make a lot of associations and um, get to many conclusions about Israeli society. But of course, uh, as soon as we ended asking about the calendar, we wanted to ask about you know views and beliefs and other things so so we asked people what does it mean to be a good jew we asked people what does it mean to be a good israeli we asked people well we asked them do you believe in god and we got the typical answer the numbers in israel are basically 80 20 80 percent of jews in our study, it was 79%. But uh-huh. in, so it's 80-20 believe versus don't believe. Right. It's but interesting that, because there are those who say they believe, but they don't practice anything. Right. Just right. to be safe. No, but, but since <laughs> we, had, we had several rounds of, of surveys, uh-huh. on the second round, we say, okay, we already know that it's 80-20. So we are pretty much in the line with other surveys. Let's make it more nuanced. And in the second survey, we presented several options. Rather than just say, do you believe or do you not believe? We say, do you believe with no shred of doubt? That's option one. Option two, I believe, but I do have doubts. Mm -hmm. Number three, sometimes I believe and sometimes I don't. Number four, I do not believe, but sometimes... I do think that there is something. And the last option, I strongly believe that there is no God. And when you get such variety of options, you suddenly see, okay, there's 80% who say they believe in God, but when you ask them, do you believe in such way that you have no doubt, it goes down to 50-something percent. Right. Of these 80%, many do have doubts. So you, again... The, the trick is to get a more nuanced picture. And when you get a more nuanced picture, Israel is becoming much more interesting. I want to read um, a table with some data that I found. That to me, it was extremely interesting. It's in the book. It's from the book. Did you say it was available on Amazon? The book is available on Amazon yeah, in English. Just, just to plug also, it in. Of course. <laughs> just oh, uh, We'll put links also. And it's also available. Um, so I mean, it's only it's Kindle, Kindle and or print, and right? Print. Right. Okay. So here's a table I got out from the book with interesting data, and I'll read it to you, and you'll tell me what you think about it. So the question is, 
What do you do? What do you believe? So 38%, bear with me, guys, 38% amongst Jews in Israel say they do fly the flag on Independence Day and they make Kiddush on Friday night and it's important for them to be Jewish. That's 38%. Then 18% say, yes, they fly the flag on Independence Day. They do not make Kiddush on Yom Kippur on Friday night. And for them, it's not important to be Jewish. The next 12% say they do not fly the flag on Independence Day and they do not make Kiddush on Friday night and it is important for them to be Jewish. Next is 8% who do not fly the flag on Independence Day and they do not think, they do not do Kiddush on Yom Kippur on Friday night and it's not important for them to be Jewish. And so, and then it gets... And yeah, the we rest... should tell the audience that there is a test at the end of the right. session on these numbers. Yeah, no, but no, but there is actually, a, you reminded me, there is a questionnaire online. Right, right. There is, there is a way for readers to go online to the website of uh, JPPI, the Jewish People Policy Institute, uh-huh. and they can answer a questionnaire of uh, 36 or 38 questions and find themselves on the map of Israeli Judaism. So they can compare themselves to different groups within Israeli Judaism and see where they are in comparison. But, but These numbers, what do you make of them? Okay, so, so these numbers are, are telling in, in, in so many ways. We, we took three, three items, uh-huh. okay? One is about practicing Jewish tradition. You know, uh, making Kiddush on Friday night, that's Jewish tradition. The second one is about Israeli nationality. The flag. Raising the flag. And the third one is about perception or about beliefs. Is it important for you to be Jewish? Uh-huh. What we are trying to, to show by this, and, and we show it in many other ways in the book, is that Israeli Judaism is really an amalgamation of two main things, Jewishness and Israeliness. For Israeli Jews, and that's why we call the book Israeli Judaism, it's not Israeliness and it's not Jewishness or Judaism. It's both combined and, and, becoming, it a, and becoming essentially one thing. Mm-hmm. In the minds of Jewish Israelis, not all of them, of course, but a majority of them, Jewishness and Israeliness are becoming one and the same. So you make Kiddush on Friday night and you raise the flag on Independence Day, on Yom Atzmaut, and these two make you a better Jew. Mm-hmm. Because when we ask Israelis questions such as, what does it mean to be a better Jew or a good Jew? They'll say, uh, uh, serving in the IDF. Well, serving in the IDF, that's civil duty. As a citizen in a country, if, uh, if the country wants you to serve in the military, you go and serve in the military. There's no, nothing essentially Jewish about it. But again, in the minds of Jewish Israelis, uh-huh. serving in the IDF is part, not just of their Israeliness, it is an essential part of their Jewishness. So... These things are coming together to create the, the unique 
culture of uh, um, Israeli Judaism. And what makes it unique? It's unique because this is the first, the only place and the only time in which we see such culture. There was no such culture when Jews only lived, you know, dispersed in many countries uh, and lived as uh, smaller communities in many places. They had no national life in the sense that we have them today in Israel. And they also did not have the type of modern life that we have in Israel today. So, so in Israel, we, we basically take a civil, modern, secular state and we make its culture strongly, highly Jewish. And this is what makes us all, again, Jewsraeli, you call Jewsra- the Jews Israelis, we, we are much more Jewish than we tend to understand. Um, f- for us, for us Israelis, Judaism is not something that we need to think about. It's just something we do. This, that's the way we live. Mm-hmm. We live by the Jewish calendar. We practice Judaism in, um, I call it effortless Judaism. You don't, you don't have to in, invest much thought or much effort. You don't have to spend money especially for it or spend, you just do what everybody else does. You know, it's, it's uh, Passover, Seder night. What would you do? You know, if you don't go to a Seder, you will literally sit alone in the dark. So everybody goes. There's no such question, do you, uh, uh, do you uh, go to a Saturday night? Of course I do. 98% of Jews do. 98% of Jews in Israel go to a Rosh Hashanah meal. Because yeah, what, what else is there? There's no Chinese in a movie yeah. on, a, on a Passover night in Israel. You have to do what everybody else does. And this is what people here and do. It makes, me, it, it makes me think, you know, as, as I was reading the, the book, because in this table, for example, I fall at, at the 12%. I do not raise the flag on Independence Day, not because I don't like the flag. I just don't do it. I don't even know why. And I don't make a douche on Friday night. But it is important for me to be Jewish. And you're young. You're young. Um Many of the practices that we see for Jews in Israel become more pronounced as people get older and form families. When they have a family, when they have children, well, okay, I don't, it's not that I do not love Israel. I don't raise the flag because, you know, I didn't buy one, I didn't yeah. bother. But when you have a child at home... You want to set an example. Set an example, or he might see it on a, a different... apartment and he'll ask you why why don't we have such flag so it's becoming part of the part the, the, the point is life is filled with contradictions here because you know I was reading uh, there was a very provocative op-ed in Haaretz by Rogel Alfer this last Sukkot and it was all about and he has very hard anti-religion uh, columns on Haaretz And it was about, like, it, it started, the paragraph said, uh, Rogel, it's his name, he says on himself, Rogel is not building a sukkah uh, on Sukkot. Rogel doesn't care about a sukkah. Rogel doesn't celebrate Sukkot. Rogel doesn't buy the four minim, the four uh, plants. And I, I, you know, when I read his columns about religion, I find myself um, identifying with the essence of it because 
for me doesn't mean anything as well. On the other hand, it is important for me to be Jewish. So what the hell? It's so confusing. So uh, I, I read the article. Um, there were also some great responses to this article. I thought the article was juvenile in, in some way. Uh-huh. Uh, I know Rogel. I like him. We worked together for many years. So it's, it's not as if we have a, a personal issue here. Um, it was juvenile in the sense that, okay, he... he, he does want to sit alone in the dark. That's his right. I, I will not force him to make a sukkah or to celebrate Sukkot or to celebrate any other holiday. Um, we celebrate holidays because it's fun and it's great and it's enriching our lives and it's part of our way of, of um, you know, going through the year and the, and the um, you know, an adulthood and you know, make, making life more interesting than just living them day after day with no, no stops and no celebrations. You Maybe know, we seculars are, are so afraid because you talk about it in the book, about Hadata. Right. We're so afraid of it. We go to the very other extreme big time. Yes, right? I, I think, I think that's, that's certainly part of, the, of, of a problem that we have in, in Israel. What we, what we find in our surveys is very clear. Israeli Jews love Judaism. Israeli Jews hate Jewish establishments. So the rabbinate, they really dislike it. The Israeli rabbinate is one of the most disliked, if not the most disliked institution in Israeli life because Israelis... They have monopoly like, on marriage, on They have monopoly on, uh, on certain things, but I'm not even sure it's the monopoly. I think it's the mere fact that these people think that they can tell us what we should and shouldn't do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Israeli Jews do not want to get lectured by rabbis or politicians or leaders or any other person who wants to tell them what's right and what's wrong. We know what's right and what's wrong. We, are, we have our own opinions and we can form our own habits and our own practices. So the moment Jewish practice meets Jewish establishment, it becomes problematic. When you keep it away from establishment, when you just let people do what they want to do, they will light their Hanukkah candles, no questions asked. Why not? They do it at schools. They do it at homes. They do it on street corners. They go and eat donuts. It's fun. It's a holiday. It's a celebration with children. As long as rabbis do not intervene and, and do not come and examine our menorahs and tell us, oh, no, you, you must have a different type of candle or you must light the menorah from right to left and not from left to right, or vice versa. If you let people just do what they want to do, they, they have no real problem with this. And, and again, there is a small segment within Israeli Jewish society that, is, that feels very alienated from this Israeli Jewish culture. But it is a minority, and I would even say a, a fairly small minority. It's not. If if you read the arts, you might you might come to the wrong conclusion that it's a huge segment of the population. No, it 
it is some people who write and or read Haaretz and maybe some of their friends. But most of the Jewish population in Israel celebrates Jewish culture in many varied ways and doesn't feel at all a need to apologize for it or to, or to feel, you know, detached from it. Mm-hmm. There is a part, some of the questions in the book that you asked people, you cannot compare to the past because no one asked them before. Yeah, these are new questions. Yeah, but some you could, and you show there, there are some interesting trends. For example, the kibbutz, how the kibbutz and the ending of, of this story about how economy affects everything and trends. Can you, can you tell a little bit about that? Right. The, the, the question of the econ- economy is very interesting because many people tend to think that, Israel, that Israel's culture is dictated by ultra-Orthodox politicians. You know, they say what they say, and since they have the power of politics and they can pressure the coalition, etc., Israel is going down the road of Iran. We are becoming Iran because everything is becoming darker and darker and things are closing down and everything is forbidden. Only today, Derry said that he wants to legislate a law against buses on Shabbat. Right. But but the fact of the matter is that Israel today is extremely more open than it was 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. And the more you look at Um, instances in which there was a debate about a certain thing. And, you know, the one of the examples that we described in, in the book in length is the opening of uh, movie theaters on Friday night. Uh, there were several rounds of such debates. We described one from the days of the British mandate in Jerusalem, for not for Friday night, but for Saturday night. And then we describe one in Petah Tikva, in the city of Petah Tikva in the mid-80s. And ultimately what happens is that the ultra-Orthodox object and object and delay, and then they lose. They lose if what they fight for is something that the Israeli public is not interested in, in doing. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to... Uh, Red lines. Yeah, when it comes to movie theaters on Friday night, there were many Israelis who wanted to have the option of going to the movies. And the objection of the ultra-Orthodox could not prevent them from doing this. It could, again, it, could, there was, it, it was a delay tactic. It could not withstand the pressure. And ultimately, the politicians had to surrender and... You know, I remember growing up in Israel in the, in the early 70s, there was barely a movie theater opened on Friday night, of course, in Jerusalem, but not even in Tel Aviv. Today, more than 95% of movie theaters in Israel are opened on Friday night. My prediction, you probably didn't read the article I wrote this morning in the Marif Daily, but... Uh, This morning, I project that in a few years, within a few years, there will be buses in almost every city in Israel on Shabbat. Wow. Not like 
this will not be like everyday buses. Like in Haifa today. Yeah, it Haifa will be a limited, have... limited uh, type of public tran- transportation. And 20 years from now, we will barely remember that we even had a debate and about it. And you have it. flying cars also. Exactly. Uh, the, the example as I used this in this morning's article is the, the issue of uh, uh, saving... Um, Uh, saving light time? Yeah, saving light time. Saving... Daytime. Saving light daytime. Right. So, so I use this example, and y- you might recall that a few years ago, we, st- we were still debating this, whether we should move the clock before the holidays or after the holidays. Religious people were complaining that it makes Yom Kippur, f- fasting on Yom Kippur, more difficult. And, uh, in the EU, they stopped doing that, I think. Right, right. But, still do it. but in, in Israel, there was an issue about it because of pressure of religious parties. Ultimately, they lost the debate. The rules were changed. And, you know, six years later, we don't, again, remember. We, we don't even remember that we had such right. debate. Right. I want to go to the promise we made in the beginning about analyzing a little bit the election results in the light of your data. So I guess you weren't surprised by election results. They showed divide. Well, I, I wasn't surprised, first of all, because I, I'm, I'm working closely with Israel's best pollster right so <laughs> I see the numbers um, almost uh, you know every week or every two weeks and 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 you could see you could see that this is this is what's going to happen right now now the divide interestingly the the divide is not is not much about issues. About the issues. The divide today is mostly about one issue, and that's the question of whether Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu should stay in office. That's the big divide today between Israelis. Of course, there are other issues on the table, but if during the 90s, for example, the big debate was over the Israeli-Palestinian peace process, today this issue is fairly marginal. In the Israeli public debate and what we had in the last rounds of election is the issue of state and religion mm-hmm. the issue of Haredi power ultra-orthodox power and and all the, the things IDF, the Haredi yeah, sir, yeah yeah service in the IDF so all the things that are associated with the um, The power of religious parties to dictate an agenda for Israel was on the table. And, you know, the reason it was on the table is because of a very strong bond that is apparent between the ruling party, the Likud party. The Likud party has been in power since the late 70s for almost all of the time. With few exceptions, for most of the time since the elections right. of 1977, the Likud is in power. Right. The supporters of Likud, the coalition partners that it chooses time and again, are the ultra-Orthodox parties and the... The settlers' party. Yeah, the religious Zionist parties. Mm-hmm. And because of this, 
you know, even Israelis who agree with Likud when it comes to issues of security, peace process, Palestinians, annexation, settlements, Golan Heights, Syria, relations with the United States, they feel uncomfortable about the fact that the partners, the allies of Likud, dictate a type of culture that many Israelis disprove of. You know, no buses on Shabbat. Well, many Israelis do want to have some type of public transportation on Shabbat. There, there are many such issues that bother Israelis. It's not as if you, you don't see... There are not many such issues that are more than annoyance. It's more an annoyance than a real dramatic obstacle. People can still live their lives here and they have pretty good lives. And it's not as if uh, we all struggle because of the dictates of the rabbinet. We can, for most of the time, we can just ignore the rabbinet and forget that it exists. But it's an annoying fact that it exists and it's an annoying fa fact that we fund it and that the government supports it and that on some issues it even has some power to, to rule. And this is something that Israelis are fed up with. And I think that's why Likud... Half of them. Well, half of them, more than half of them. And that's why Likud is having difficulties in forming a coalition. Many Israelis realize this time that the Likud party is going to form a coalition with the same partners like they do every time, with the ultra-Orthodox and the Zionist religious parties. And thus they shifted, they moved to the uh, Israel Beiteinu party, led by Avigdor Lieberman, uh, staunchly anti-Haredi rhetoric was the main feature. But very right-wing on the... Very right-wing yeah. on, on security matters, on policy matters, very right-wing, but also very secular. And even when you look at Blue and White, Kachol Avan, the, the, the main party other than Likud, their agenda on security and the peace process in Gaza is not much different than Likud's. Their agenda is different when it comes to who are our natural partners, what type of coalition, what type of discourse we would like to have in Israel. We want something else. We do not want this narrowly defined coalition of right-wingers and religious people, you know, dictating to the rest of the population. But they are ready to negotiate with the Arab parties, which for many Israelis is a taboo. Well, they're ready to negotiate with everybody. Uh, blue and white, the, the essence of blue and white is that, you know, we are ready to talk to everybody and form a coalition with everybody as long as this coalition works for the benefit of the majority and not for special interests. I think many Israelis in recent years felt that the ruling coalitions led by Likud were exaggerating or over overdoing this thing of special interests, especially the interest of the ultra-Orthodox, and they, that, that's why they felt the need to, to move to the other camp. Right. So what will happen now? Who knows? Um, Where it, it's not going to change. And in fact, in the book, you say Haredi numbers are rising. 
right. but also secular numbers are rising. These well, are the main yeah, trends. Se secular, secular numbers are, are pretty stable. Stable, um, not declining at yeah, least. Yeah, what, what you see, if you, if you divide the population into the four main groups, the secular, that's about 50% of the population, and, it, and it's solid, it stays about the same for many years now. Mm -hmm. You have the, on the other side of the spectrum, you have the ultra-Orthodox, This is a population that's rising because of very high birth rate and very strong retention rate. Mm -hmm. Then you have the two less stable groups. The Masorti, traditional group, it's declining with time. Masorti people are becoming more secular, less traditional. And the Zionist religious group, that's an interesting group because they also have many children, but their level of retention is low. So about a third, between a quarter and a half of their children will become grow up as religious uh -huh. and then become traditional or secular. Which so, nobody talks about, but for them it's a huge disaster. Right? Well, it's a failure. Disaster is a it's a failure of their whole system. It's, it's, a, it's a challenge for them. And it's a challenge that some of them are well aware of, but they, they, they can't do much they can't about fight it. Modernity, right. modernism, and right. cell phones, these people, and These people, are, you know, I, I come from, from this community and, and I'm quite familiar with it. These people are trying to live both religious and modern life. And uh -huh. that's tough. If you live a secluded life of ultra-orthodoxy and you, you, know, you reject modernity, you reject um, strong involvement with the rest of society, you have better chances of high levels of retention. Yeah. If you live strongly secular lives, then your children will, are likely to also be secular. But if you live kind of in between, you try to enjoy boy, both worlds. You also is, take a chance. Yeah, there is I just heard a, a podcast with uh, Joe Rogan with uh, Richard Dawkins. And the, Richard Dawkins said that they have a project where they upload his books for free on the internet. And people in the Muslim world and I guess also in Jewish world just download and read it. So in a world where you can just secretly grab... So anyone who's a little bit of a independent asking question... He's prone to get his hands on a Richard Dawkins book. And, and from there, the road to being secular is pretty much... Right. And, and I think this, this will have impact on uh, ultra-Orthodox society. Ultimately, ultra-Orthodox society is adopting cell phones and smartphones. And, you know, they try to defend themselves from the modern world. But remember, this is much easier when you are 5% of the population. When you're growing and becoming 10%, and then 12%, and then 15%, it becomes more difficult to, you know, to circle the wagons. There, is, you know, there are too many wagons to circle, and then you begin, you begin to, to lose people on the, on the margin. So I think the more, the larger ultra-Orthodox society becomes, the more likely it is to begin showing the same trends that we see in Zionist religious quarters. Also, in the end, person, 
a person is not a sum of numbers, right? Because you can here in Tel Aviv we live in a bubble, and I guess in Bnei Brak it's a bubble. But if you if you get to to meet some people who are uh, Haredi or maybe from the keep from the settlers or whatever, um, sometimes you might find that if they answered your questionnaires. Which they did. Which they did. They will seem far away from me. But when I meet some of those people, you tell yourself, well, they're so much like me. Like, so much is, is in common. And we have so much in common, but not because I'm close to him, more because he, the Haredi or the Masorti, is much closer. There's, you know, you feel it. Although when you pull it, you might miss it. So, so one of the things that we argue in, in our book, and I think this goes against the, against the public discourse, against what people feel when they go on Facebook or when they, you know, when they tweet or when they listen to, um, you know, to radio talk shows. What we show in the book that, that Israeli society, Israeli Jewish society is fairly close-knit it's fairly you know the the level of of kinship within this society is fairly high this is not a, a society in which we see ruptures this is not a society that is uh, uh, ripping apart that is ripped apart this is a society of course we have great debates over many things and we will continue to have debates with different notes in the in yeah, the elections but, but right but 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 i think that on the big things mm-hmm. most jews in israel do agree mm-hmm. most jews in israel do want israel to be a safe and modern and thriving state for the jewish people mm-hmm. and when you start with that you know it's it's becoming easier. much easier to to form you know, coalition. different coalitions <laughs> for, for different purposes. Not necessarily, you know, the, the narrowly defined parliamentary coalitions, b- but we are much more in agreement about the big things than we tend to see in our day-to-day lives. So before we go, what's the next project? And maybe a follow-up to that. Um, to, I think to me, it would be fascinating to see the same thing on Arab-Israeli population. Right. This, this was suggested by, by several people, and, and I think it, it will be a fascinating project. I so do maybe more hard to... Well, we, I, I do conduct some polling um, of the Israeli-Arab population um, and see some similar trends among uh, Arab-Israelis. Uh, you know, the... The story of our Arab Israelis is a fascinating story, and we don't have time to to discuss it in length. But with Arab Israelis, there is also a common mistake to think that Arab Israelis are distanced or detached from Jewish Israelis or from the state of Israel. It's not really true. Arab Israelis are becoming a part of the lively fabric of Israeli life. They work here. The economy, They're, again, like in the kibbutz. They are happy uh, to be here. They are proud to be Israelis. They uh, s- succeed economically, educationally. Uh, they are advancing themselves in many ways. And, you know, m- one must remember when they look around us and see Arab societies 
in other countries, they in many ways feel blessed. Yeah. You know, it's, it's probably still much better to be an Arab Israeli than to be an Arab in most other countries that offer uh, such option for, for, um, for anyone. So yes, the, the project about, of Arab Israelis is, is always on the table. I thought that it will also be very interesting to do a similar project with the same thorough and detailed questionnaire uh, among American Jews. Right. You know, we, there are many studies of American Jews, and I'm a keen reader of most of them, if not all of them. But the type of study that we did on Israeli Jews does not exist for American Jews. And maybe you might one... actually need Nate Silver at the end. Uh, well, <laughs> one day with, with, their, with the proper funding, it's, uh-huh. going, it's quite expensive to, right. to run such study. Uh, but maybe, you know, that could be a next project or maybe something completely different. Okay. So the book is called Hashtag Israeli Judaism. And it's on uh, Amazon. You can get it for Kindle, digitally, or hard copy. What about bookstores in America? Not yet. Not yet. Okay. And Shmuel, let's plug your things. You have your podcast. Right. Rosner's, Rosner's Domain. Domain Podcast. And it's everywhere, right? You can get it in all platforms. Yeah, you can Google it or and find it in all platforms. You're on social media? I'm on social media. Uh, Rosner's Domain on Twitter. And uh, on Facebook. You do lectures? I do lectures um, mostly in Israel, but also in the United States. Right. Uh, Someone pays your ticket, you won't say no. Right, right. I, I, um, I have some plans for some uh, lectures in the United States, but not yet set dates. So I will not plug these in okay. for now. But I'm, I, you know, talking to Jewish Israelis and Jewish Americans about the findings of these studies is a fine, fascinating exercise in and of itself. Just, just getting the questions and the comments and the responses is very interesting. Guys, go to the website. I'll post it and do the questionnaire. It's fascinating. And that is it. Before we go, we have a collaboration with the Jewish Journal, jewishjournal.com. They have amazing podcasts like your podcast, but also David Suiza's podcast. And they have great articles. So check them out at jewishjournal.com. We also collaborate with Arutz Sheva, which is israelnationalnews.com. They are also a great news source in English about Israel. Our sponsors are The Chosen One Card Game. Get them at thechosenonegame.com. It's a hilarious game um, for Shabbat also uh, with cards. And I'll try it. Yeah. Never did. Yeah, it's, it's fun, but it's 17 plus, mind you. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and we accept donations, guys. So help us out. Go to 2NJB.com slash donate. And, you know, we do this on our free time. So every sum is appreciated. Shmuel, thank you so much for coming. It was a pleasure. Good luck with the book. Thank you. Bye.